Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Ariman Weisha, who's the founder of uh, Profit Adventures and is a graduate of Columbia University uh, in 2014. He worked as an early employee at Haptic and co-founded Elemental Labs, which is funded by Matrix India and Lightspeed uh, Venture Partners. Uh, Ariman launched uh, Profit Adventures and helps entrepreneurs build the next generation of technology companies. Some of the investments are Vernacular, Tapchief, uh, Jekasan uh, and many others. Welcome to the show, Ariman. Thank you, Rohit. Very happy to be here. Awesome. So, you know, how did you get into this crazy world of startups and venture investing? Good question. So um, I actually studied history at Columbia. Uh, I'll be frank and say that I didn't really think too much about my career while I was in high school or while I was in college. Um, You know, I'm I'm fortunate that I didn't have to think very hard about that. And and college for me was more of a time of kind of self-discovery. So I did a lot of uh, liberal arts courses because I enjoy that. But towards the end of my college, when it became time to get a job, I realized that most of my peers were gravitating towards consulting and investment banking, which were the two most popular sort of post Ivy League um, career tracks. None of those interested me. Uh, I used to follow the news a lot and my interest naturally settled on tech companies and their valuations and their investors and stuff like that. And I realized that I was spending most of my time just looking and thinking about tech and VC. Um, So that's how I kind of knew that I liked tech is because I spent most of my time just thinking about tech and reading about tech. And uh, VC just seemed cool to me because you got this opportunity to, you know, work alongside great people who were trying to change the world and you got to do it from the position of an underdog, you know, so something about that whole story really resonated with me. Got it. And, and how, did, um, how did you get into Haptech and how did uh, Elemental Labs happen? So I knew that I wanted to uh, be in India and I wanted to work in tech. So uh, okay. a lot of people were very surprised uh, when I left New York immediately after graduation to come to India. But for me, it was clear that, you know, the Indian startup story and tech story was going to take off and it was going to be a great place to be. So I wanted to be there. So I came back with no plan and I just looked on AngelList for available jobs and I saw that Haptic was hiring and it seemed like a cool company. The founder seemed really great and it turned out to be the case. So Haptic was a great experience. Uh, Elemental Labs, I was actually, you know, I was at Haptic for a while and I really enjoyed the culture and being part of a startup that was growing so fast. But I knew that I wanted to be a founder myself and I thought that, okay, if I want to be a founder, I should take some time off and learn how to code. So while I was doing that, I attended a hackathon organized by a guy called Ronak and the hackathon was around blockchain technology, a topic which I had been interested in for many years. Uh, So basically, long story short, I met my elemental co-founders at that hackathon and we decided to build some tools on top of the nascent blockchain industry. Got it. And and, uh, is Elemental Labs still uh, still, uh, there? Are you still running Elemental Labs? Yeah, so I was not running it. I mean, I was one of four co-founders. Uh, okay. I, I left Elemental Labs after our fundraise in 2018 to start okay. Ventures. The company is still around and it still has an absolutely fantastic team and is full of really smart people. So yes, it's around. Right. And so what were some of the biggest takeaways from, from founding Elemental Labs? Because, you know, you're a young founder, you've just came back to India. What, what were your learnings from, uh, you know, building businesses out here in India, vis-a-vis what's happened there in the US? 
I would say that I came into the experience with very few uh, preconceived notions, Rohit. I didn't really have an idea of how business is done anywhere. So right. I mean, in India, I'd heard stories that, oh, it's so difficult to do business. It's India's like, you know, whatever, 150th in ease of doing business, all that kind of stuff. But when I came here, I actually discovered that that wasn't the case. Maybe it was just that times were changing, but as a young entrepreneur working with enterprise companies, stock exchanges, banks, etc., I found that they were very willing to give a chance to young founders and to adopt new technology. So I found that, you know, if you, if you find the right stakeholder in a bank and you sell your value proposition, well, like they will, they will, you know, give you a shot. Although it's very important how you frame your narrative, how you sell yourself. Um, communication is, is very key in positioning. Interesting. And, you, you know, 2018, uh, you, you started uh, Profit Adventures. So, so what, what does the investment decision making look like at Profit Adventures? Yeah, great question, Rohit. Um, at Prophetic Ventures, you know, I'll be frank with you and your, and your listeners and right. say that, uh, you know, I'm young, I'm 27. I just turned 27 and I don't right. think that I know a lot. Um, you know, certainly I don't think I'm like an expert on investing or anything like that. Right. So my, my strategy with Prophetic Ventures, and let me just give you a kind of, uh, let me explain what Prophetic is. So Prophetic is basically a brand. Prophetic is a partnership firm between me and another partner of mine who is now no longer active, but I'm carrying on the Prophetic brand. So it's a brand which I use as a blanket term to cover my personal activities, as well as certain syndicates, which I raise to invest in select startups. So that means that if I invest in a company in my personal capacity, I will consider it a prophetic invest, prophetic investment. And in some cases when I've built up deep conviction and I feel like I want to invest my own capital as well as raise external capital to invest in a company via a syndicate structure on a platform like Facebook, uh, sorry, angel is not, Angelist. Right. Uh, I will do the same thing uh, and call it a prophetic uh, kind of portfolio company. So, um, the main things for me in prophetic are that I make, I make some investments, small ticket, personal investments I make for, let's say learning purposes where I want to invest in a company, you know, two to three lakhs because Angelist obviously allows that I want to invest a small amount to get my foot in the door to uh, learn and get network out of that, out of that activity. Even if I can't get financial returns, I want to get learning and networking out of every single deal I do. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I, I, when I feel like I know enough about an industry or I've, uh, got enough conviction, then I'll make a larger investment of 50 lakhs to three CR in a company. And I may raise external capital. Uh, and in many cases I'll raise external capital to do that. So when I am investing like that, uh, with the primary motive of financial returns, there are a few things which I look for. I mean, you, you hear it said very often, and that's because it's true, but at an early stage founder is really everything. Right. I think that, you know, markets are important but trying to time a market preempt a market or something is very difficult to do. There's a lot, you know, that could happen and, and could go wrong. But if you invest in a really solid founder, somebody who has the kind of passion and drive as well as like the resourcefulness to get connections, to do jugaad, to find ways to make things work. I think that's a huge plus. Some of the best founder stories I've heard are founders who fly, you know, to go meet a client, wait outside the client's office every day for a week, hang outside Starbucks, looking for a client and, you know, find him after stop when he leaves his office on the way out every day, like that kind of stuff really impresses me. And I think the founders need to have intelligence, resourcefulness, uh, and like a lot of passion and, um, toughness. So those are things I invest in. Uh, I also don't like to invest in companies by and large, if they 
are raising very small rounds and they don't have visibility on a larger round because a lot of the investments I've made that haven't worked out, I've seen uh, when a company is just raising like, you know, one CR or like 50 lakhs or something like that. Um, and uh, this is like really seed stage investing, like friends and family stage. Right. So uh, I also find that to be, um, you know, a turn off, I guess. Right. And, you know, you, you talked about fundraising uh, to the, you know, 50 lakhs to three crores. Uh, so how, how's the fundraising that you, that you're doing for other corporates uh, for other companies, how you, how are you able to do the fundraise for these companies? So Rohit, um, let's say that there's a company like Jaikasan. I invested right. in Jaikasan in a personal capacity because I was impressed by the founder in 2018. Right. Uh, then in 2019, they were able to secure a $1.5 million term sheet from Bloom. Right. At that time, I had enough conviction and knowledge of the business to want to put significant skin in the game myself. So I said that, okay, I'll put 25 lakhs myself in the company. And I'll also go to investors and pitch the deal to them. Basically say like, hey guys, I, I'm going to investors who I think would be relevant to the business. Like they could add value and they have the inclination to invest in early stage companies. So uh, I'm lucky to have a good network that I can use to, to meet investors like this. So I'll go to investors. I'll say, Hey, listen, I'm putting 25 lakhs of my own money. Here's the information about the company. Here's the founder. Here's why I'm bullish on it. Let me know if you want to invest. If you do, I have a structure on AngelList which you can invest in and we can together invest in, in the business. So our incentives are aligned completely. Got it. And you know, do you think uh, there are benefits of angel investing? Because it does take a little bit of time for, uh, for, for you to know that, you know, how your investments are faring. Um, so w- what do you think are the benefits of angel investing, uh, especially in, in today's ecosystem? Uh, <laughs> well, I think that, you know, obviously financially it can be a great activity. Uh, you could, mm. you know, if you, if you invest well, you could obviously multiply your money, like very few other asset classes. Right. Emotionally, I find it to be very fulfilling because I really enjoy working with founders and kind of like fighting the fight with them. Right. So, um, I find it, it angel investing has led to some of my closest relationships, uh, with some of my portfolio founders who I count as really good friends and stuff. And intellectually it's very fulfilling because you get to work alongside smart people on a bunch of different problems. So you get a lot of insights and learnings about the economy and about different business models, investors, structures, things like that. So intellectually, emotionally, and financially, I find it to be quite stimulating. Right. And, you know, since you've been a founder, you know, what advice would you give to founders who entering the world of angel investing? I would encourage founders to do angel investing for sure. I think that if you have, if you're lucky enough to have the financial bandwidth to do so, it would be a very enriching activity because you get to, you know, meet really great people uh, through angel investing. And um, it helps you for your next entrepreneurial venture as well, because you get to understand, you know, as an investor, you have a different level of access to a company as just, you know, like a well-wisher or an outsider. Uh, So you get to understand a lot more about a business's actual operations as an investor, and that can help you as a founder in your next gig. Right. And, you know, you talked about Jake Hassan, where you double down on, on, on that investment. What should be the, you know, the core questions uh, that should determine whether you need to double down on an investment or not? I think that you should have visibility on the company's growth trajectory. If you think that, firstly, I mean, 
I would only recommend to invest in companies if you have conviction on a team, if you have conviction on an idea. Right. Uh, it's possible for that conviction to deepen as time goes on. So you can be like, wow, these founders are even hardier, even smarter, even tougher than I thought. Or, oh, this market is bigger or things are moving along better. I didn't think that we could achieve these targets in six months. I thought it would take two years. So your conviction can deepen, things can improve, and then you can sort of take a call to double down basis what you've seen uh, you know, in the time after your investment. Um, I wouldn't say there's one kind of rule, but it's right. definitely useful to see how the how the team has involved because when, when you've invested the first time versus when the second investment opportunity comes around, there'll be a significant change in the team. So more people will probably be added or the focus has kind of changed a little bit. So it's important to see, you know, is the company sticking to its plan? It's okay if it's not even because plans change, but okay. what is, what is the, what is the DNA of the team? Like, has it been strengthened or has it been altered or, you know, what has, has your initial uh, admiration for the team, change to something else? Has the business been able to achieve its targets? Have the targets changed? If so, why? I mean, there's so many, there's too many variables to prescribe for all of them. Right. And, uh, you know, you've, uh, uh, you know, we, before the call, we talked about the lot of operator funds on the micro uh, VC and super angels that have come in the, in, in the, in the last five years. Uh, you know, what uh, advice would you give to founders when they're, when they're looking at uh, investor selection at pre-stage? Uh, I would say, I mean, first, let me just address your, your first point, right? Like lots of super angels and former founders and stuff have emerged. Correct. Uh, angel investing is, I think venture investing and angel investing in particular are kind of like a, like an old boys club. So what I mean, right. it's kind of like a nexus, like there are certain people who just have like unbelievable access to companies. So somebody who is a successful founder, that person, because they carry that tag of being a successful founder, will be able to probably invest in the hottest companies, right? The best founders, the hottest deals will come onto the table of the super founder. Absolutely. For example, like somebody who's had a billion dollar exit, okay. the VC fund, which, you know, has invested in that guy will be telling that, you know, successful founder, Hey, come and invest in all of our seed companies. Everybody will be giving him pitch decks and term sheets and stuff saying, Hey, do you want to come in with us? Do you want to come in with us? So uh, I, I feel like you, the more you have a name in this ecosystem, the easier it is for you to get better and better deals. Right. So if as a founder, you're success, you're lucky enough to, you know, have, have success and have fine, you know, financial bandwidth, then it could be like a flywheel for you. Like, right. The more deals you do, the more you earn, the better portfolio you have, the better deals you get, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and as for startups selecting investors, I think that there needs to be like, a strong kind of emotional connection between the founder and the investor. I mean, you're becoming partners in a company and uh, th that's a really significant thing. So you should be able to enjoy spending time with your investor. You should be able to see eye to eye with them. They should be able to understand you. You should respect them. You shouldn't just see them as like a cash cow. Right. Uh, there should be like a deeper relationship there because things do go wrong. Relationships do get frayed. There are times when founders will get nervous, anxious, and they will need an investor's support and encouragement. But if the relationship of respect and trust isn't there, then it can go really bad. Absolutely. You know, because you, uh, you want to spend at least 10 years with the, with the investor, or at least, you know, it's a five to 10 year journey for the, for the founder. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, how much time allocation are you giving to portfolio? Do you, uh, you know, 
if you invest into X number of of companies, do you allocate an X number of time uh, for for a particular founder in your portfolio? There's nothing formulaic like that. Uh, there are certain companies, you know, as as I mentioned, like I would say that there's probably two categories of companies. There's the first category is companies where I make like a much smaller bet of like let's say like one to three lakhs, which right. is basically like an investment that I, I want to make so that I have like a partnership with the founder and the company and uh, mainly it's there for my, so that I can learn more and build the conviction to double down. The, in these investments, I tend to be a little bit more passive and kind of, you know, touch base with the founders uh, slightly less often. And then there are other companies in which I've actually invested, you know, like, as I said, 50 lakhs to three, four CR. And uh, there's more management of those companies. So there could be periodic updates for those founders or, you know, many of my founders, I'm in touch with them on a daily basis on WhatsApp. Uh, as I said, we've become friends. So we speak about many things and, um, but there's nothing, you know, like once a week calls is kind of the, the most structured thing that I have beyond that. I don't have any other like, okay, on Mondays, it's this company, Tuesdays, it's this company, nothing like that. Right. And, you know, earlier you talked about uh, uh, there are times when, you know, founders are not able to achieve the targets, which they have talked about, uh, uh, you know, what do you do to build a relationship or trust and honesty with these founders so that, uh, you know, they're there for the, for the long term with you and uh, you're able to achieve the targets uh, at the same time? Well, uh, the, let's talk about the, the kind of trust and relationship first. Right. So I, I do like to spend a good amount of time talking to the founders before investing. Right. I'm making like, you know, as I said, my larger kind of investments. And in that, in those conversations, I like to talk about things outside of work as well, right? Like family, friends, like life, interests, what makes them tick. Uh, have some kind of social interaction with them and kind of try to bring the, try to try to understand what they're like when they're not working, if that makes sense. Like what is their personality? And often I'll begin to add value even while discussing the company with the founder. So even if I haven't committed to investing, I'll say, Hey, look, you know, I know I haven't committed to investing yet, but why don't I connect you to such and such person or such and such bank? Maybe it'll help your business, you know? And it's okay. Even if I don't invest, like, it, like it's fine. I'm just doing it because I, I want to see you succeed. So sure. Like, go, you know, let's, let's do this. So I think that sets a good precedent with them and they seem to appreciate it. I mean, it's not always possible to do that, but, uh, I mean, I just try to be a good person and I try to look for good people and that's right. the only thing I can do. Absolutely. I think, I think being a good person and trying to help them out is very important because I think uh, there's a lot of uh, noise around that VCs and angel uh, investors are not able to help out the founders and uh, they are not of, uh, not of any help. But I think uh, 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 angel investors and VCs can, can really help our founders uh, during, the, during the toughest of times and they can really help out not only in investing uh, funds for them, but I think uh, in other areas as well, you know, when they're looking out for, for, or for, a, for a specific hire for, for, the, uh, for the function in the, in the company. Um, so, so uh, you know, before the, before the call, we talked about you volunteering for iSpirit. Uh, what is iSpirit and, uh, you know, why are you so excited about uh, iSpirit? Sure, Rohit. So iSpirit is a nonprofit technology think tank, right. although it's more like a think and do tank, because instead of just thinking up policies, it actually takes an active role in implementing those policies as well. So uh, some of the things which iSpirit has been involved with, you might have heard of is like UPI. Right. 
So the idea for UPI, the conceptualization, the design, et cetera, came from iSpirit. And uh, what, what iSpirit tries to do is to take a long-term 30-year view towards using technology to solve some of India's largest societal problems, such as financial inclusion and healthcare inclusion. So uh, like with UPI, the logic behind UPI was, okay, uh, using Aadhaar, companies, banks have been able to kind of onboard people into the banking system at an accelerated rate. What I mean by that is in 2008, when Aadhaar uh, was being launched, one in eight Indians had a bank account. In 2018, 10 years later, one in three Indians had a bank account. So if India had followed the trend line of other developing nations, it would have taken 46 years to reach one in three from one in eight. Instead, we did it in 10 years. And that was because Aadhaar offered a platform for banks to very easily onboard customers and satisfy the compliance with KYC, etc. So anyway, Aadhaar enabled people to get access to banking. UPI was the next step, which, you know, now that people have bank accounts, how can we increase the ease of doing digital payments and decrease the cost? So that's how UPI was kind of born from that idea. And the same kind of thinking applies to many different fields. And what I mean by the same kind of thinking is, can we, can we build an open extensible platform that marries the public sector or regulated entities with banks with the private sector and entrepreneurs and innovators so that the entire ecosystem can benefit. We don't want data silos and closed gardens. We want an open ecosystem with lots of interoperability, lots of innovation. And that's what we've tried to do with UPI and, uh, and now and other initiatives you might've heard of like DigiLocker as well as the upcoming account aggregator framework, which is something I'm very excited about because it has the potential to completely change uh, the trajectory of India's financial services penetration. Right. And, and do you think they, they can be a, a clear market leader when it comes to uh, payments and fintech industry? Like, you know, do you think uh, in the next couple of years, it's going to be Paytm or WhatsApp or Reliance you, or do you think in this uh, industry, everybody, uh, uh, you know, can be a market leader in their own segment? Well, uh, payments is something which I don't know too well. My understanding of payments is that payments is not a valuable business from a, a PNL perspective. Payments is a valuable business from a strategy, a stickiness, branding perspective. Uh, margins seem to be very thin. Right. Regulation also seems to be a little concerning right now with the zero MDR, etc., being passed on to, to, to payments players. Uh, but WhatsApp, out of all the players, WhatsApp seems to have the biggest advantage for me just because of how much we use WhatsApp in our daily lives. But I don't know who will win and I don't know what winning will even mean, right? Like, I think that in a country like India, uh, maybe nobody wins, maybe different people win. Maybe a company like PhonePay is very happy to incur losses or Google is very happy to incur losses on their payments product if it helps drive business towards their other allied businesses like Flipkart or, you know, other Google products. Uh, so maybe that, maybe that's a win for them, but maybe there are some other companies which, you know, India is such a diverse country, Rohit, that there are hundreds of subgroups and, you know, companies can can build and innovate for different subgroups. Like I might build a payments product catered only for like, you know, Malayali speakers or something like that. And maybe that's, maybe that's a win, right? If I can get a product that's decent there, that has decent stickiness, has decent uh, bottom line, maybe that's a win for me. Um, And what we've tried to do with designing systems like UPI and designing systems like the account aggregator framework is create an interoperable open technology layer so that anybody can then build on top of it and 
sort of specialize and customize our application for all these diverse groups that exist within India. Interesting. And, you know, since you're talking about uh, payments, you know, uh, I was interested in what is your thoughts on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Because uh, in a country like India, you know, we've been not allowed to uh, buy Bitcoins or cryptocurrencies. Uh, do you think uh, it's just a fad or do you think, you know, it's going to be Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, uh, you know, in another 20 years is going, to, is going to be the next big thing. They're going to uh, revolutionize how VC industry works and how the banking system works. So, I mean, uh, as you know, Elemental Labs was a company building middleware for the blockchain industry. So I've been kind of interested in Bitcoin for a long time since 2013. So I view right. Bitcoin as one of the most interesting technical innovations of uh, the last hundred years. It's just a really, really elegantly designed system. It's a beautiful system. And intellectually, I'm in awe of it. I think the creator should get a Turing Award and the Nobel Prize for Economics. Right. Um, in terms of its long-term viability, I don't know. It's a very interesting historical experiment. It's the first time somebody has tried to separate money and state. Um, I think that the idea has a lot of power behind it and people seem to resonate behind the banner of cryptocurrencies because of a belief that there should be like a kind of permissionless decentralized system that we can use to manage our lives, which, which doesn't you know, necessitate us giving away power to a bank or something. I don't know if cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin will be around in 20 years. I hope that they will. Um, but I do see them becoming a threat to regulators at some point. And I see it being difficult for regulators to reconcile uh, internal security and financial sovereignty with, uh, and monetary sovereignty with, with something like Bitcoin or something else. But I do see a lot of, crypt a lot of countries adopting some form of, um, you know, cryptocurrencies in within their own borders. So for example, just having a more efficient digital rupee, okay. I do see that happening. And, and do you think it's an asset class or like, you know, somebody should invest into, into Bitcoins or cryptocurrencies, like, like how angel investing is, even though I think angel investing is a little more riskier than, uh, than, uh, than a cryptocurrency because, you know, it takes its own time to, I mean, you, you may not know how, how the company is going to fold, but, but do you think, uh, a listener who's listening to the show should invest into cryptocurrencies as, as an asset class? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that, and, I, and the reason I say that is because it's possible to invest. I mean, now with the regulation in India, it's, it's very difficult to invest as an Indian, right. but, um, but I would encourage investing in cryptocurrencies, not, not because I, I do, I mean, as a disclosure, I do, uh, I do think it's, it's a good asset class to invest in because I think that it has the potential kind of asymmetric upside, right? Like in right. You, you can lose one X, but you can sort of gain like you know hundred X or something. Right. I would recommend people to invest simply because I think that investing a very small amount, right? Invest like hundred rupees or hundred dollars or whatever, invest a small amount just so that you can familiarize yourself with the experience of owning a cryptocurrency, buy a cryptocurrency so that you can begin using the decentralized internet, because that is such a powerful idea. The decentralized web. It's such a cool thing when you start transacting and when you start owning your cryptocurrency, holding it in your wallet and interacting with decentralized applications, you will realize how powerful this thing is. And the only way to fully realize that is by actually owning it and doing it yourself. So for that reason alone, I would recommend your listeners to buy cryptocurrencies. And, and do you have any favorite uh, cryptocurrency, which, which you think is going to be the next big thing, or, or maybe it's a, a, a Bitcoin, but, but do you have any suggestions for, for cryptocurrencies, which people can look into? 
Yeah, I mean, there's several very interesting, uh, like, I, I'm not giving investment advice here, Rohit, but I'm just right. talking about things from like an intellectual and technical perspective. I think okay. that some very interesting projects are Algorand, which is started by a Turing Award winner, Silvio Micali. I think that uh, Ethereum is interesting because there's so much innovation happening on Ethereum. Uh, Bitcoin is again like a beautiful system to understand. Um, there's a there's a project on Ethereum called Decentraland, which is a decentralized virtual world where you can kind of play in VR, and uh, the entire world is hosted on. Basically, it's like Second Life. I I I mean I'm I'm gonna butcher it, but uh, Decentraland is a cool project. Um, Blockstack is a very interesting project by started by some Princeton PhDs, which actually has the potential to change the internet as we know it. And it's supported by the creator of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee. So you should check that out. Got it. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, let's do the top three. What's your favorite business book? I really like Zero to One. Got it. And you know, if you could go back uh, when you started working on on your startups and profit ventures, what is the one thing you would have focused on? I would have focused on more networking, okay. just learning more by just speaking to many, as many people as possible. So when I started prophetic ventures or when I, when I started working in uh, the- both, you know, I mean, if you have different viewpoints and both prophetic ventures, as well as uh, elementary labs, you know, what is, what is the one thing you could have, if you could, if you could go back, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, well, I mean, let's just put it this way. I think that it's really important for young entrepreneurs to to go out and meet people and understand what's happening. And the way to do that is by actually putting yourself out there. You can research things on the internet and that's fine. And that's how you can kind of build up depth on a topic. But for breadth, as well as for nuance, as well as for personal relationships and networking, it's very important to get out there in the market, meet people, be active, start building a brand because these things are important in life. So go out, organize meetups, organize hackathons, attend hackathons, attend meetups, talk to people, be part of a community. I think that's important. Yeah, action networking is important. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, uh, Evernote? I just started using Notion and I think it's quite useful. Got it. And what is the best way people can reach out to you and uh, know more about Profit Adventures and iSpirit? So you can reach out to me on... Uh, I. We can put it in the show notes, I guess, but yep. aryaman.profetic.ventures or aryaman.vira.gmail.com. Got it. Thank you so much, Aryaman, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate speaking to you, man. Yeah, thank you so much, Rohit. You're doing great work. Keep it up. And to all the listeners out there, I hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.